Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Johnny Burtko. Our guest today is Tucker Carlson, founder of The Daily Caller and host of Tucker on X. Tucker has been plugged into ISI's collegiate network for years, hiring and mentoring dozens of ISI-funded interns and fellows. He recently gave the keynote address at ISI's 70th anniversary gala, where I had the privilege of interviewing him. Before we begin our conversation, I'd like to thank you, the listener, for tuning in to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, and our mission is to educate for liberty. If you'd like to join us in fulfilling that mission, please be sure to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. Now, on to the interview. Oh, all right. I, can I just say, I'm sorry for sounding like an extremist. I, I don't mean to. I'm, I'm actually the most temperamentally moderate person I know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hate change of all kinds, and I, and I don't seem to, I, I don't want to seem like a nutcase, but I, I just feel like the stakes are high. Yeah, the stakes are high. So I think I, the place that I want to start is with this focus on the elites or the ruling class yes. that you keep talking about. Because I, I think a lot of people hear you legitimately railing against all of our institutions and the individuals running them, and they think that you're, that you're a populist, right? But actually, you believe we ought to have a leadership class in America. It just needs to be a good one, not a rotten one. And so I'm wondering if you can unpack that tension between the sort of legitimate populism that's rising up right now in this country, but also the need for something constructive, not just a, a revolution, but actually New leaders. How do you how do you think about that tension? Um, I mean, there are many many. Th- I would just say to to answer the last part first. I think the people currently in charge need to be scared into backing off. I just need to be clear. I, I don't think this is like it's going to work. Like, oh, listen, I've got a better idea. No, no. There needs to be pushback that wakes them up. We've gone too far. We've really transgressed. We've this is too much. Um, no, I'm hardly a populist. My gosh, there's no society in history. It, it's a, look, there's always a leadership class. There's always a small number of people who make the bulk of decisions. It's a matter of, of two things. One, you know, in a democracy, the average person should have some power, shouldn't be completely powerless. Labor has no value now, right? So the average middle-class person doesn't have any economic power, again, because labor has no value. I see Joe Biden with the UAW, and I was like, it's a joke. It's a joke. The, that union's a joke, but, but the whole idea that the working man can do anything is, like, silly. And so the only power the average person has in our country is political, is voting. My view actually is to prevent populism by having better leadership. So it's not, and and I am especially mad about it since I'm not sort of like guessing about this. I spent my whole life with these people. I grew up with them and I spent my professional life for 35 years in Washington, D.C. with them. So it's not like I'm, you know, thinking, wow, it seems pretty crazy there. It's like I know firsthand because I know the people involved. Hunter Biden was my next door neighbor, as I told you. So uh, I'm very, very mad. It's very personal. They hate me. I'm glad. And I just feel like if you have authority, if you have power, and this is where I am very Protestant, like you do have a special obligation to try to help people to whom much is given, much is expected. I really believe that. I really believe, I, I hate to say it, no blessed oblige, I really believe that. Buy the housekeeper a new car. It's your duty. And so if you're running an enti- the richest country in history and you're stealing it all for yourself and the main cause of death between the ages of 18 and 44 is suicide 
and the second is fentanyl OD, that's, that's a sign that you know, you've really failed. I'm sorry, it is. And I'm super mad about it. So when we were, we were chatting on the phone before the event a few weeks ago, and just so you know, Linda, all my compliments to you were sincere, because I was talking with Tucker about how you embody this sense of both the, the love of high culture, but also this connection with ordinary people. And as I was describing this to you, uh, you said, well, you know, the reason that this doesn't exist anymore is because of status anxiety. Yes. Among the, can you unpack that? I started writing and I was well, I have blown away. So many theories, some of which are forbidden and naughty, but um, they're real. I think that, uh, I think the turnover, it's just, like, we've just had all these massive changes in American society. And I think a lot of people who currently have positions of authority are worried, are very anxious about preserving them. And so, for example, there is this weird taboo, it is not weird actually, it does make a kind of sense, uh, about expressing any kind of sympathy or affection for the white working class. Like, why is that? I mean, or any worker, but it's particularly the white working class. And I happen to live among them, so I, I, I see it a lot. But like, the one thing you could never say in Georgetown when I was a kid is like, you know, you could feel sorry for everybody in the most obscure, you know, orphans of Bhutan. But like, the Archie Bunker world was like, they deserve to die. And now, of course, they are dying, and that's not accidental at all. They were left to die, and their deaths were hastened, I think, by a leadership class that really hates them. And it's like, why? What'd they do wrong? Anyway, at best, they were like chewed with their mouths open or something, but like they didn't actually commit any real sins. And I think that a lot of people in our leadership class are like, it's almost like seeing a first cousin you didn't grow up with who is like taking a different path. Anyone who has first, I have this, who's like first cousins that are just like very different from you and you run into them and you're like, ooh, there's something awful about it. They kind of look like you, but they're different. It's one of the, it's almost like certain simians freak us out because they have like human eyes, they're just too close. And so I, I think in order to lead, you need to be secure, both with yourself, you need to have an ordered personal life and an ordered stable family. I think it's absolutely essential. I would never hire, I would never take life advice from someone whose children hated him. I wouldn't, why would I? Do you know, would you, would, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Would you take real estate advice from a homeless person? No. <laughs> so. Um, I think they are very caught up in like things that don't matter at all, like dumb credentials and what stupid school you went to. No offense, I don't care. That's immaterial. What I care about is what you produce. I care about the fruits of the tree. And they don't. And uh, so they're very anxious people and very loathsome. So the interest of honest conversation, uh, I'm curious. So, you know, we're here, we have the founders of the conservative movement with us in this room. And I'm wondering, for your vantage point, in your own lifetime, what you would assess as the most profound accomplishment of the conservative movement, and also the biggest blind spot that you have seen over the past 30, 40 years? Um, oh, I mean, it's changed so much. I mean, I, I would have told you five years ago the biggest blind spot was just assessing the real world effects of economic policies you think are gonna work. And just to be clear, I'm a free market guy, I'm for lower taxes, I'm for less regulation. But I just think, I'm for those things because I think they produce more human happiness. And five years ago I would have said the, Repu the conservative 
firmament in Washington doesn't pay enough attention to that, but I think they do now. Hmm. Actually, Heritage has spent a lot of time on this under Kevin, and I'm really grateful to see it. I mean, the biggest failure of the conservative movement is the world that we have now, none of which is conservative, and it's getting more left-wing by the day. The biggest success of the conservative movement is, is persisting and existing. It's still here, which is kind of incredible, given the firepower brought to bear against it. And it's so important for there to be an intellectual option to the tiny suite of options available to your average young person. Like, I just can't get over how narrow and stultifying their program is. It's like, whine about your identity, whine about your identity. It's like, they're not offering anything. Live alone, childless, in some drywall-clad pod in a big crime-ridden city and work for some stupid bank until you die. But you get weed! Whoa, really? Yes, and we have DoorDash. No way. Yeah, that's the future they're promising. So, I mean, they don't actually have a lot to offer. And I think the, cons the, the institutional conservative movement, Heritage, ISI, some others that haven't totally disgraced themselves like AEI, um, which has really disgraced itself in my opinion. Um, I don't know if I was clear enough about that. Uh, but the, the few that persist in kind of trying to defend Western civilization, they offer a real option. And I just know from the ISI kids rotating through my office, I mean, cheap labor, but um, we did exploit them. But I know that there's like some random kid in some random town who hears about somebody's like, wait, what's that? What's that? And then he winds up at ISI or Heritage or, or other institutions on the right and learns more and his life has changed and America's improved. It's always worth telling the truth, even if you feel like nobody's listening. Every prophet was vindicated in the end throughout the Hebrew Bible, every single one. And a lot of them got stoned to death. In fact, I think the majority. But again, they're like, I mean, do you know how Jeremiah's neighbors felt about him? Loathing. <laughs> now we revere him. So like, it's just, it's worth telling the truth no matter what. So two, two challenges facing America. Obviously, at home, we have a massive administrative state, which has rendered basically our republic unrecognizable from what it would have been 100 years ago. Yes. Second, you know, on the, on the world stage, we have America extended in endless wars, but we also have the real threat of a rising China uh, and the situation in Ukraine. So what I'm wondering about is, at a fundamental level, is America an empire? And if so, when did it become an empire? And is it possible to restore our republic without destroying our prosperity and power? I mean, because ISI, I mean, everyone's fluent in this language. So obviously empires destroy republics, obviously. Um, and so you don't, you don't want an empire. We've never admitted that we have one. What, how many military bases, Victoria? You would know this. How many military bases, how many military Countries, do we have a military presence around the world? 120, okay. Yeah, not an empire. Um, <laughs> you know, by the way, there are good things about empires. Keeping the trade routes open, I think, is essential. Um, we've used it, uh, you know, the, the fact that we have the unique privilege of possessing the world's reserve currency has made 33 trillion in, in debt possible. I mean, there, you know, there have been upsides, I would say, but it does tend to rot your republic. Um, 
I, I, I spent the last four months traveling around the world because I was trapped in a studio for like decades. And though we'd go to Europe in the summer for a week, I, I haven't traveled in like 20 years. I haven't really just spent months on the road going to different places. And so I've been to a bunch of continents, interviewed a lot of people, some off camera, mostly to answer the question, what does the world look like beyond America? And geography, I still believe, even in 2023, defines people's worldview and defines geopolitics. I mean, where you live matters. And in fact, it's, it's all important. So um, I still think, despite the digital revolution. And I, I discovered a million things that I'm not gonna be boring, but I'll just say in one sentence, the perception of America and of the world outside our borders is so different from the perception within our borders that it raises a lot of questions, like really very serious questions about our ability to know things. I mean, our media, you I'm sure every person in this room distrusts the media and thinks they lied to you. Man, you go, go to the Middle East, Latin America, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, anywhere. I've been to all those places recently. It's crazy the things they know that we don't. And I'll just give you one example. Whatever you think of the war against Russia or the war in Ukraine, um, and I'm, I don't want to debate it, or, and I think everyone involved, most people on both sides have good intentions. I'm not attacking anybody. If you've got views opposite mine, it doesn't make you a traitor or a bad person in my view. Honest people reach different conclusions very often, including there. However, every person in America who I ever met was convinced for the first year and a half that Ukraine was winning, was on its way to winning. We just need to send more material and they would win. The view for the rest of the world is like, that's insane. Because they're looking at the fundamentals. It's not even a political question. Russia has 100 million more people than Ukraine. Russia is the largest landmass in the world. Russia has some of the deepest energy reserves on planet Earth, and Russia also has massive industrial capacity. And Ukraine has none of those things. What? And you're telling me, with the help of NATO, which doesn't actually exist in the sense that most Americans think that it does, is going to beat Russia? I mean, however much you may fervently want that, that's not going to happen. And I can promise you that no smart person outside our borders ever for one second thought that was gonna happen. And yet every person I know, including very smart foreign policy wonks, <laughs> that somehow convinced themselves it was gonna happen. Now, what that suggests to me is a systemic problem where we're not capable of reaching obvious conclusions about things anymore, and that's death. Like, ideology aside, opinions aside, if you can't even assess basic, like, Wikipedia-level information, who's got the advantage? A hundred million more people? Okay. Oh, they're gonna, they're gonna lose. We're gonna topple Putin. Um, it makes, that makes me really worry. Not just the decisions we're making, but the way that we're making them concerns me a lot. We have time for one more question, and all of you actually have a copy in your gift bag of Tucker's book, The Long Slide. And it is an autographed copy. What? Um, it's autographed. So I've, I've seen he's been signing some books. If you actually flip the page over, his signature's already there. You can still come up and say hi. No, no. Um, so this is a reflection on 30 years in journalism and yep. some of the pieces you've published. So one really long question, and then a short one. Uh, how has journalism changed <laughs> over the course of your lifetime? But then lastly, and maybe you could address this to our ISI students and campus journalists. What would you say to a young investigative reporter at one of our campus newspapers who wants to be the next Tucker Carlson? Um, 
how has it changed? I mean, well, my dad was a journalist. That's why I went into journalism. My great-grandfather was a journalist, ran the Dallas Morning News. Um, so I grew up in a world where, you know, people read books and told stories about places they'd been and amazing things they'd seen and remarkable people they'd interviewed. And, and the whole goal in my house growing up with my dad and my brother was to lead an interesting life. And that was my goal when I started. It was not to, like, tell the truth to power or whatever. I never, that never occurred to me. I mean, I felt like, I don't know, I was from a world that was in power. I didn't need to tell the truth to power. I believed in the world I was in, and that had no role in my conception of journalism. I just wanted to see interesting stuff and meet interesting people. I just wanted at the end to be like, yeah, I had a really interesting life. Grandpa's an interesting guy. That was my whole goal. And, but the one thing I knew about journalism was, in the end, the journalist is the guy who gets to give the finger to the king. Like, that's your job. And you had to be fearless. And my father and great-grandfather were fearless guys. Tough people, for real. Like, legit. And um, I wrote about my dad in there. Tough human being. So um, it's so different from that now. I mean, of course, it's just a Praetorian Guard that exists to protect hedge fund managers and Kamala Harris. I mean, it's, it's literally their job is to take the people with the most power and attack you for criticizing them. Well, I'm never asking some, some, well, I've had so many debates about this, but like, and I'm just gonna offend people, but it's just a question I asked once, which is, if we're for work, then why do we tax work at twice the rate of capital? Why do we do that? And I have investments, I'm against raising capital gains rates or whatever, but like, it, it is a statement of value, right? We, we tax Marlboro Reds, honestly, a great cigarette, because we don't want you to smoke them. You know, in Scandinavia, a quart of vodka is 60 bucks because all the Scandinavians are drunks and they know it. They don't want them to drink. So we're, we're taxing labor at twice the rate of capital. What does that tell you? We don't want you to work. So I raised this point once to somebody who immediately called me a communist. I was like, I don't think I'm a communist. Uh, and then I raised it on TV and immediately I called her racist. <laughs> racist! All right. So that kind of gives away the whole game right there. And by the way, just to be clear, I know I'm making everyone uncomfortable. I'm not calling for raising capital gains rates, but I would like to see parity between the two, because why wouldn't you? I mean, that's insane, actually, if you think about it. It's very offensive. And by the way, trust me, that along with high gas prices is one of the single most offensive things to people in lower income zip codes. But the, me the media never raised these questions. They never raised basic economic questions ever. And they attack anybody who does. And moreover, they protect some of the worst people in the world from scrutiny because they have power. That is like a complete, like, it's like a scientific inversion. That's like an x-ray of what journalism is supposed to be. Um, and the last thing I'll say, which brings me great sadness, I've thought about it many times, is I have four children, one son, who's a big reader and smarter than I am, and he, all my kids, three of them went to the same college, decent college, so he finishes college, and I, you know, I take him fishing, because you're not looking at each other, so you can talk, and I say, you know, what, you know, have you considered journalism? This is like spring of his senior year, and he's like, well, and I said, you know, it's like multiple, you've been fourth generation in our family, like, it's an honorable thing, and he's like, no, I don't think so. I was like, no journalism at all? He goes, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but they lie, and they're losers. And I was like, 
No, it doesn't hurt my feelings at all. <laughs> just, just devoted my life to it, okay. Um, and of course, he didn't hurt my feelings. He said, what are you gonna do? He goes, I wanna go into politics. I was like, really? You're choosing politics over journalism? And he's like, there's less lying. It's just super straightforward. Vote for my guy. I'm not like showing up being like, I'm the protector of the downtrodden and then like flacking for Sam Bankman freed. You know what I mean? Which is the whole media. And so he went in that direction. And honestly, that right there just tells you, like, if your kids aren't continuing the life that you lived voluntarily, choosing not to do the things that you did, says a lot about you and what you did, doesn't it? Yeah. So I can't say I regret anything, but if I had to do it again, I, I, I don't know, I'd probably sell asbestos or something. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Or peddle chewing tobacco to children or something a little bit more popular and honorable. You know? Your kid ever tried Copenhagen? <laughs> All right. <laughs> We're... <laughs> We're actually going to end there. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, select Modern Age articles, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we'll see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI.